0: Uh, Would you join me, Acts chapter number 1, Acts chapter number 1. Last week was an introduction uh, to this book, and we had a little extra long handout. Um, And again, I'm looking back here, I still see uh, some left. I know many of you, some of you don't do that, that's fine. Uh, We do these handouts for those of you. Uh, that that works for you, others of you that may not work for you, maybe more of a listener, or maybe you're like me. If you have a, a spouse or someone that's taking the notes for you, you're like, I'll get them from you, I need to listen. But some of you, you are really, that the notes work for you. We have some binders back there if you want to start collecting those. Uh, you may choose to bring yours each week, that's fine. Or you may take it home and just take your paper home, uh, and that would be great. Uh, Acts chapter number 1. All right, Acts chapter 1. So we have plenty of those left. Acts chapter 1. So before we do this, before I read today's text, let's do a quick review. Um, I'm sure our reviews will get longer as we get into the book. Um, But today, just a real quick overview of what we looked at. Y'all help me out. I'm not going over all six things, but I do want to quickly touch on five of the things, the categories we looked at last week. You help me out. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and The book of Acts. I don't expect you to remember this next question. But I do want you to remember the the frame of it. The time that we think it was written was around 61 or 62 A.D. But the main thing is as we go through Acts, as the Lord wills, eventually, hopefully we get to the end. And we're going to see a very abrupt, strange ending. Why does it stop there? And it seems that Luke wrote Luke and Acts as Paul arrives in Rome as a prisoner. So his own people in the nation of Israel are going to arrest him. He's going to be in prison in Israel for two years. But eventually he's going to appeal his case to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. He has that right. Not everybody could do that. And then he'll go to Rome. And so we're going to end the book with him under two years house arrest. And it seems like that is when Luke wrote these two books. Third thing we noted was the recipient. We're going to see his name in a moment. These two volumes are written to the same man named Theophilus, which if you take his name, Theo, and Philus, means lover of God, loved by God, friend of God. uh, Multiple ways I guess that could be taken. We don't know for sure who this man is, but it seems best to conclude that this is someone, a high-ranking official, because he's called most excellent Theophilus in in the introduction of Luke. That this is a high-ranking Roman official that Luke would have encountered when he got to the capital city of the whole Roman Empire. And that's this man, Theophilus. Now, not to answer out loud, but I hope just as I introduced this thought, I gave two precautions last week. As we go into this book, we need to be careful. Because if we're not careful, we may end up getting some doctrine that might not be exactly. This is a book you better have some precautions. We're going to draw a doctrine from it. We're going to draw a doctrine. But we can arrive at some incorrect doctrine, mainly for two reasons that we pointed out. Number one, this is a book of transition. We'll even see that a couple of times this morning. So remember, they're starting here. They're going to end up over here. But it's going to take, they're going to be in this process to get from here to here. And so some things may happen in this time period, in the 30 years of the book of Acts, that may not be true in A.D. 61 or 62, moving on into the church age. The other precaution had to do with this as a narrative. That's the style. It's going to be even calls it that as he introduces Luke. He says, others have sought out to, set out to compile a narrative of all that's been going on. So Luke says, I too, me too, I want to do it as well. And so we know that he's writing a narrative. And the key there is because it's a narrative, not everything that the book of Acts is going to say, this happened and that happened and that happened and this person said that. Not all of it has God's endorsement. It's just going to be an accurate account of what happened. Much of it will have God's endorsement, but some may not, and we have to discern uh, the difference. Because there's going to be some things that may be, is that normal? Is that what we should be expecting to happen in 2022? Or was that something unique to that time period? And we'll ask for the Lord's wisdom as we go through. And then the last thing we noted last week was Luke's purpose. And we pointed out two things. His purpose was, first of all, historical and I, I, I did this when I introduced Romans years ago. I did not do this when I introduced Matthew. So I don't want you to think every book Jeff introduces is the most important book. He's that guy. What's the most important book about? The one we're preaching on right now. Okay, Romans, I made a case that Romans may be like as, as important as any book in the New Testament. Matthew is an awesome book. It is the Word of God. But I thought last week some other authors helped us to understand, like, well, you can really make a case that because it is the only history book of the early church, that, boy, the book of Acts is unique. Uh, we, We have to have it or we would have so many gaps. So it was historical. He wants to write an orderly account of all that had been happening. And the other thing was Luke's purpose was evangelistic. He writes. He does years' worth of research And no doubt, weeks and weeks, writing Luke and Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's this practical side. But here, years of research, years of research. And culminating in this, in his mind, for one man. So it kind of occurred to me again, just even yesterday. Sometimes the Lord may call you to invest what seems to be an inordinate amount of time and energy and discipleship into even one person. And we want to be following the Lord's lead. Luke, we benefit, the church has benefited, but in his mind, he does all of this work, writing these two books for this man, Theophilus. So with that as our backdrop, we didn't really get into this text last week, so we're going to do verses 1 through 5 this morning, just a straightforward. The goal is not to sensationalize. The goal is not goosebumps. The goal is, what is this telling us? And this is an important launching pad for where we're going to go in the weeks and months ahead. Look at verse number 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I know I'm being redundant, but I just want to make sure we're all engaged. What is the first book? Help me out. Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Now Luke's writing Acts. So let's keep it real simple. It's a very straightforward text. In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus would have already read it, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In the first book, What we call the gospel of Luke, the biography of Christ. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And we know that. Luke did a version. We just finished Matthew. Very similar. Very similar. We looked at what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. And that was Jesus' pattern, by the way. His pattern was to do things. And typically, he would do and then teach based on. Now that I have your attention having done that, what did he do? Miracles, which resulted in wonder, wonder which served as signs. So he does all, and he's teaching. So Luke is saying, I've written about, not all, he doesn't mean all, that I covered everything. He means all types of things that Jesus did and taught. And so he did things. Ultimately, it was the greatest single act of obedience to God is the culmination of of Luke. And he's talking about what he did, all the miracles, yes, and how he walked among people and all of his teachings. But it was his death on the cross to pay for sin and then his burial and his resurrection And that's where it culminated and all the way up to what he's going to talk about, the ascension here in a moment. So Luke's gospel, his overview of that as he encapsulates his own first book, volume 1. Read verse 1 again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So for following Luke's chronology, he starts at Jesus' birth, and he moves forward, and he goes until the time after his resurrection when he was taken up, and that's the last paragraph of Luke, this ascension. So verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, what happened before the ascension? Watch. After, so he was taken up after he had given commands. See, I, I've read this, these first three verses especially, probably 40 to 50 times in the last two weeks. Um, and out of the five verses I thought boy what are the key words and I have struggled I come up with like 20 key words <laughs> that is not good uh, and, and to try for me to, to like put this together like what is this I, I think I understand what the, the text is saying there's so many key words here we go so I cover the life of Christ he's saying all, he, all that he didn't talk until the day that he was taken up but what happened before that After, he's taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Do you guys feel that? There are lots of words that are like, man, there's a lot of key words here. Hopefully you just felt. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke continues. Something else has happened before he's ascended. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. So, it's what we... And you know this. We don't read that like, hey, they tried to kill me. I had a lot of suffering, but it didn't work. I'm still alive. No. The suffering includes his death... But having overcome death, verse number 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. How does he present himself alive? By many proofs. Many. Proof. Many what? Proofs. A lot of key words. What are some of those proofs? Appearing to them during 40 days. Luke's writing, he appeared to them. How did he prove he's alive? He appeared to them during 40 days. Not for 40 days. He doesn't appear for 40 days, but over a 40 day period, he comes and he goes and he comes. He's here and then he's gone. He's here and he's gone. Sometimes in rooms with the doors closed and locked, all of a sudden the Lord just appears. Various places in Judea and Jerusalem, Galilee, the Lord shows up. Back to verse 3. He presented himself alive to them, the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking. Appearing and speaking about the kingdom of God. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to touch on that phrase. I think we'll go into that next week. When he shows up over and over, Jesus keeps talking about the kingdom of God. That's why verse number 6, Lord willing, we'll see next week. They want to know, are you getting ready to set up the kingdom? Because he's been telling them and talking all the time about the kingdom of God. That'll be point 1 of verses 1 through 3. But now look at verse 4 and 5. This will be our second point today. And while staying with them, the idea of staying there... Could mean lodging, but it doesn't really care. He's with them. Again, he comes and goes. It's the idea probably he's eating with them. Salt, salting with them apparently is uh, one way that that could have been translated. So the Lord is on one occasion here eating with them. I'll go and confess. I'm I'm not sure if this verse 4 happens in Galilee or if it actually happens in Jerusalem. But either way, here's the point. While staying, eating, salting with them... He ordered them, by the way, just so you're tracking, who's them? The apostles, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So whether it's given in Galilee, go down to Jerusalem, don't leave, or meeting in Jerusalem, don't leave Jerusalem. The Lord met with them. He's eating with them. And he orders them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait for the promise Of the Father. Wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from me. So that tells me automatically, Jesus shares the promises of God with us. He's saying, I told you the promise of God. You need to in in Jerusalem wait there for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard it from me. What is the promise? Verse 5. For John baptized with water. We know that. Jordan River. For John baptized with water, but you will be, notice past tense, John baptized already. You guys have been baptized. I'm assuming Matthew probably wouldn't fit that category. Uh, he came along later, but maybe the others would have been baptized by John. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Not many days. So catch the, the flow and the energy of that. The Lord He keeps showing up. He talks about the kingdom of God. Finally, He's saying the spirit's coming, not many days. And now we can see already ahead of next week why they're going to ask why they're going what they're going to ask down in verse six. All right, let's notice two things this morning. Number one, would you notice? Uh, here's what we alluded to already last week. We notice that there's a transition from Jesus to the apostles. There's a transition from Jesus to the apostles. I didn't have room for this. If you, and I don't even know that I'll get this across, but if you want to maybe make a little line from Jesus and even add the word, so here's what we're looking at in verses one through three. There's a transition, a passing of the baton from Jesus to the apostles. And I even have this idea in mind Jesus visible. So let that sink in. What's this transition? From Jesus visible to the apostles. That's the transition we're going to be looking at. Now go back to verse 1. Back to verse 1. Luke's introducing the second part of his two-volume set. And he does so by recapsulating by his first book. Still got your Bible open? This is not going to be on the screen anymore. So it's why you want to have it open in front of you. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Watch, simple. What was the focus of Luke's gospel is Jesus. Jesus, what he did, what he taught. That's the focus of the gospel, what he began to do and teach. Luke's saying, what's my gospel about? It's about Jesus. But now look at verse 2 because he's transitioning to encapsulate where he's going in this volume. What's this book going to be about? And he's already going to introduce the two, shall I say, key, primary, watch this, I'm putting in quotes, visible actors. So, introducing the book of Acts, he's going to introduce the two key visible, Holy Spirit. His evidence will be seen. You won't see him exactly. But the two key players are introduced in verse 2 for where we're heading. Verse 2 until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. There's the two key players in this book. Volume 1, it's about what Jesus began to do and teach. Volume 2, it's what the Holy Spirit and the apostles, they're going to be the key actors. Now, watch. If you just caught all that I just said, then you may be thinking, Okay, Jeff, think I got it. Think I got it. Luke's gospel is about Jesus. Acts is about the Holy Spirit and the, and the apostles. Yes, but not fully. Because that last part doesn't tell the whole story. There's more to it. And I want to get your help. No one may get this. No one may get this. But I want to at least throw it out there. When I looked at verse 1 and I'm pulling these key words. What are the key words? There are certain things just as I try to read it multiple times. Certain words just kind of have punch to them. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. But the word began Is a dominant word. And if if you were to read it, it's very obvious that Luke is putting emphasis on the word began. So is it this simple? Luke's gospel is about Jesus, Book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit and the Apostles. Well, wait. I want to have you write this note in a moment. Luke's emphasis, and you help me. Luke's emphasis on the word began. This is about what Jesus began to do and teach. The emphasis on the word began implies another word. This is about what Jesus began to do and teach. This one is gonna be about, that's what he began. This is about what, what do you think? He continues. Would you write that down? So Luke's emphasis, the gospel, is about what Jesus began to do. Acts, more accurately, is not just about the Holy Spirit and the apostles. More accurately, Acts is about what Jesus continues to do by His Spirit through the apostles. So I'm saying that because I want to emphasize. You're not going to see the name Jesus over and over and over except in sermons. And you're going to see some of the narrative is going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Whose Holy Spirit is it? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of Christ. So Jesus is working still. Let me drive that home slightly deeper. Let's go back one more time, make one more pass. You ready? Did I give you enough for that whole note? I think I did. All right, you're writing that? Those of you that want that. All right. Could we say it this way? The Gospel of Luke focuses on what Jesus does in his physical body on earth personally. Acts, where we're heading, is going to focus on what Jesus does from heaven through his spiritual body. This focuses on what he does through his physical body on earth. Where we're heading in this volume is what Jesus is going to do through his spiritual body. What is his spiritual body? The church. So already, I can can already say, if I remember one of the points that we want to finish with today... The Lord has passed the baton of his work to the apostles, to the church. Now, so so here's what you should be feeling. Wait a minute. So Jesus is still working. Yes. Acts is about Jesus? I thought it was about the Holy Spirit. Luke was, he's still working. Now, some of you may be thinking, hold on, how does that square with this? I thought Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Isn't he resting He's ruling and reigning. Yes, he's resting from his high priestly work. Right? You say, wait a Jeff, I know the Bible says that Jesus says, just before he died, he says, it is finished. It's finished. What is finished? Write this down. Write this thought. Jesus' work of redemption is completely finished. Completely. His work of There is nothing left to do to be saved. If anyone in here, you're trying to do something to be saved. Anything other than just receiving the salvation of God, the promise of God because of the work of Christ that's already finished. If you're doing anything other than that, you are not on your way to heaven. The work of redemption is complete. He is resting from that. And yet, along with that, there's still this work of proclamation. So his work of redemption is complete in the book of Luke But the work of proclamation, there's still this whole world out there that didn't know what Jesus has done. Many today, they're born every day, they don't know what Jesus has done. So there's still this work of proclamation. And the Lord Jesus Christ is orchestrating that through His Spirit, first through the apostles, and then into the church. And you should be feeling the weight of that this morning. You're part of the process, not to get yourself saved, but to take the message. And that's a key thing in the book of Acts. So... Again, it's this passing of the baton. We need to be feeling that that Jesus passed the baton. The baton being the gospel. He is the gospel. What he says is the gospel, his work is the gospel, he does it, he passes the gospel on. As a baton, you guys know a relay race, this gets passed to that person and then they keep passing it on down. Someone passed it down to me in 1979 in a way that I finally understood it. I'd heard it before, but it finally connected with me in 1979 and the baton was passed to me. When was it passed to you in a way that you received it? So how did that happen? We need to notice three things. ...about the apostles. Here's how Jesus passed the baton. So real quick, I want you to feel this. Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. What Jesus did and teach. Now we have this book called Acts. So before, so here Luke writes about what Jesus does and teaches. Before just launching into the Acts of the apostles and their teaching... ...he first backs up and says, okay, we know that was his credentials. He's the son of God. Who are these guys and what are their credentials? What are their credentials? Because I'm going to go ahead and tell you all. As we go through the book of Acts and we're going to hear these guys saying things and preaching things. I might offend you. We're going to put equal weight on what they do and say and preach as we have been all the way through the book of Matthew when Jesus was preaching. We're going to put equal weight on that, equal authority. and maybe be like, wait, what? How is that possible? They're not Jesus. Well, there's three things that we need to know about the apostles. Number one, we learn in verse number two that they were chosen. The apostles, how could we put so much weight on their ministry? And that's a lot of weight to put on their ministry. We put a lot of weight. We put full weight in the book of Matthew on the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. Now we're in the book of Acts. We're going to put a lot of weight, that much weight, on the ministry of the apostles. We are. Why? Because number one, the apostles, Jesus' apostles, were chosen. You've heard this, right? John chapter 15, verse number 16, in the upper room, Jesus tells the 11, Judas is gone. He says, You have not chosen me. I chose you. Hey, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Look at verse number two. Let's just make it real clear because I understand. By the way, guys, I'm not doing a deep dive in this, I'm not going to offend anybody. But I'm just telling you, this concept is all through the Word of God. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're missing so much in the Word of God. If you still hate this and buck against it, then there's not a lot of the Bible that you can read and just let it say what it says. Look at verse number 2. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Look down at verse number 24. You'll not see it on the screen. We've got to replace. There's going to be an event. And Peter's going to take the lead. We need to replace Judas. So there's going to be these two guys that are put forth that meet the qualifications. It's going to be a man named Joseph, Barsabas, Justice. So he's going to be put forth. And there's going to be this other guy named Matthias. And look at verse number 24, not on the screen. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Which one of these two of you, Lord, as far as we can see, they're equal. Which one of these two have you chosen to be the twelfth apostle? And then we'll see what the Lord does there. Again, hope you got your Bible open. Flip with me over just a few chapters, chapter number 9. Look at chapter 9. You've not chosen me, I chose you, the apostles whom he had chosen. Lord, which of these two have you chosen? We're going to run into chapter number 9. This man named Saul of Tarsus is going to get born again, and he's going to go into the city of Damascus. And there's a very devout Christian in the city of Damascus who's heard of Saul of Tarsus because he's come to kill Christians in Damascus. But the Lord tells Ananias, this devout Christian, he's going to tell him something about Saul because he wants Saul to go to him. Look at verse 15 of chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So, guys, listen. Here's where we got to start. The apostles are chosen. So, that's, here's what that tells me it is God's prerogative to choose or not to choose. It's his prerogative to choose or not to choose. We can sit here all day. Why was that person chosen as an apostle? How come they're not? I want to be an apostle. Well, newsflash, you are not an apostle. You cannot be an apostle based off of verse 21 and 22 of our text. Verse number 2 in chapter 1 of Acts, we learn that the apostles were chosen. Literally, personally chosen chosen. Appointed, trained, they're going to spend time with the Lord Jesus Christ, being trained by him. Why, they are going to go out as as his authoritative representatives. They will be his authoritative representatives. Now, here's what we got to say, the obvious, right? Start writing your note, this next one. Apart from Christ, you say, well, these guys are chosen. Okay, wonder why he chose them. Well, let's just be clear. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, these apostles, these men are nothing special on their own. They're nothing special. We know one of them was a public and tax collector. The majority of the rest we know were what? Help me out. They were what? Fishermen. You say, Jeff, you got something against fishermen. I don't. Fishermen are just average, normal guys. I'm not slamming them. I'm not saying they're the worst of people. I'm just saying they're not extraordinary. Guys, here's the impression. None of these apostles are anything special and extraordinary of themselves. If, and we're going to add Paul. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul. That's Saul Paulus. Paul does seem to have this higher IQ and these other gifts and talents. But even he, apart from Christ... He's not only not special, he's special in the wrong way. He's special in being very religious so much so he ends up persecuting the church. So the one guy who maybe has a little more smarts about him, he's so smart he ends up going the wrong way apart from Christ. So the Lord takes these not special guys, but he ends up, because he has chosen them, and the Lord puts upon them a very special, God-given gift of power and authority. And that's two separate things. They are given great power. These apostles are given power. I mean powers. They have powers to do things and to heal and to do miracles. All of them had powers and authority. And those are two separate things if you're taking that note. How much authority? Let's just settle it. More than anybody else on earth. The apostles were given power and authority beyond anyone else on earth back then. Anyone else on earth since then. Anyone else on earth today. And even as we get into eternity, I struggle with that. I haven't given a lot of thought. Somebody, maybe you have and you already know the answer to this. Who will outrank the apostles in the coming kingdom? I know that they sit on 12 thrones. Only one I can really think of that might be there would be David. And I don't know David's. Here's what I can say confidently you say, how much power and authority were these guys given? Because they're nothing special on their own. Nothing written, nothing written before or since them carries the authority of what they will say when they're preaching, what they will write, and what they will approve of. Nothing before and nothing since carries the authority of what they will write. You say, wait a minute, what about what it's right?" I am saying, in my opinion, which is the right one in this case, the New Testament qualifies, and yes, because it's later revelation, outranks the Old Testament. There's a reason it's called the Old Covenant and the New. How do we know about the New Covenant? Jesus told it to these guys who told it to us. Nobody outranked these guys. By themselves, they're just normal guys. And that's the pattern of the Lord. None of us are apostles. But I still, I read the book of 1 Corinthians, and here's what I learned. Paul says, have you noticed that not many among you are mighty or noble or wise? God does that. He uses just normal people. He uses the lowly to confound the wise. Why does he do this? So that he gets all the credit. So that everyone knows it is clearly Jesus and his power of his Holy Spirit. It won't be long we'll get in a situation where the higher-ups in Israel are going to look at Peter and John. They're going to be, how do a couple of guys like you do this? What they're saying is, you're just fishermen. You're uneducated. Listen to you talk. What I have found is the Lord chooses and allows people to do his work that are just nothing, nothing special. I've got, a, I've got a, an example in my mind right now that uh, you should be aware of. The Lord lets people serve and speak on His behalf, even those who are not apostles, and they may be just the most backward, awkward, afraid of public speaking stutterers you've ever seen. He does let people like that, even them serve in His kingdom. Number two, what's this transition? How does the Lord do this? second thing we notice about the disciples, the apostles, comes out of verse 3. Not only were they chosen, they were convinced. They're very convinced. They were convinced. They're convinced of at least a couple of things is is the point I want to make. Look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. They're convinced. These apostles... Meet this man, Jesus. Now, let's just settle it real simple. There's this man named Jesus of Nazareth, an actual historical figure. We're going to celebrate his birth. We don't know the date, but in seven weeks, we're going to earmark that day as a special day to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ as an actual event. He was a real baby. This little baby grows up to become a man. So here's a Jewish man stands in front of these apostles And he convinces them that, oh, yes, there is a heaven, and it is filled with the host of heaven, and it is the home and the abode of God, and I have all authority in heaven and all over the earth, and these guys believe it. They're convinced this man has all authority in heaven and on earth. Why? Because his life matched all the prophecies, and because he did this this thing. After they followed him for two and a half years, they're going down to Jerusalem, and he says the craziest thing. He says, when we get there this time... I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be given over by my own people over to the Romans. And they're going to scourge me and they're going to crucify me and I will die. And I'm going to be buried. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He calls all of that before it ever happens. And now here he shows up, according to verse 3, after the fact. And he convinces them that he does have all authority in heaven and earth. Because he has kept his word and his promise of actually coming back from the dead. He proves it to them. Now, I want you to write this thought. Look at verse number 3. How does he do it? He presented himself alive by many proofs. Uh, Again, I grew up on the King James. I alluded to this last week. The King James would say many infallible proofs, and that's to get across this idea. I'm not an expert in this, but here's what I understand. Those words, by many proofs, that's one word in the Greek language, and here's what I want you to write it down. What is meant by many proofs? It means the absolute strongest kinds of logical evidence. It's the kind of logical evidence, like physical evidence is what the Lord used. The strongest logical, the kind of evidence that you would take into court if you wanted to win the case. Like I'm just going to prove to you, I'm going to prove to you guys that I really have overcome the grave. The strongest kinds of evidence. And he gives us a list. So let's write these down. Two of them are right there already in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them. So Everybody get it? If there was someone over at the local funeral home, and you know they were dead, but they come back to life, what would it take for you to believe that actually happened? You said, well, I guess if I heard a rumor that they came back to life, I, I guess I'd believe it. Nah, that's not good enough for me. Unless a lot of people with a reputable uh, lifestyle were to conclude it, then they'd probably get me thinking. You say, well, how would you, if somebody really wanted to prove they've come back to life from, again, one of the local uh, mortuaries, what would they have to do? Well, maybe try the things that Jesus did. He did at least four things. Number one, write this down. He appeared to them many times, physically. He appeared to them physically many times, I tried to think through this. I, I actually had this information better in my mind a couple of months ago as we were coming down the home stretch of Matthew 28. So as I take 1 Corinthians 15, put it together with what Luke says and the other gospels and try to decipher it all out, and of course Acts chapter number 9, here's what I concluded. Over these 40 days, I would say at least a dozen times Jesus appeared physically to people. So that tells me what, this is not what happened. The Lord didn't show up one time, and his physical body popped up way away at a distance, and the arm was going up, and there's somebody in the weeds throwing their voice. They gotta... Hey, guys, it's me. Jesus, I'm alive. Just letting you know. What? Huh. Jesus is alive. Go spread the... Okay. I didn't even watch the movie. It's not Weekend at Bernie's or anything like that. Not to be blasphemous. Not, not, that's not what happened. This is multiple, multiple intimate, physical encounters. These guys have time to think about and talk about, digest. And there he is again, and again, and again. Second thing, he speaks. He speaks. keeps talking about the kingdom of God audibly. He speaks many times audibly. Number three, there's an occasion there eating bread and fish. So what does the Lord do? He proves that he's not just a memory. He's not just a ghost. He's not a spirit. He eats bread and fish with his disciples, proving. Number four, what else does he do? There's an occasion that he, two occasions to the two on the road to Emmaus. And we know that there's this other time with the eleven. And Thomas says, I won't believe it unless I can put my finger in, in his wounds. So the Lord shows the, the wounds in his hands and feet from the cross. So he reveals his cross wounds. He eats physical food. He wants to let them know. I, this, is, this is a real physical body you're seeing. And I am not just a ghost. It's not, it's not only a physical body. It's the exact same physical body. Look at the marks. And he revealed those to them. So these proofs are many. They're intimate. They're close range. They're able to touch. I have no doubt that when he walks beside the Sea of Galilee, if there's any sand type uh, Turf there. He's leaving footprints. This is, this is him. This is a real person. He really has come back from the dead. Last thought on this second one is this. Laney writes the following. You've heard it before, but hear it fresh. His followers, I'm going to give you four descriptions he gives. His followers were utterly dejected. Utterly dejected. A short time afterwards, they were extremely elated. His followers were utterly dejected, confused. What's happened? We thought he was the one. A short time afterwards, they are extremely elated. And showed his followers, the apostles, showed such reassurance as carried them by a sustained life of devotion... Through to a martyr's death. Did you catch the four things, four descriptions? They go from utterly de- dejected, extremely elated. They have a sustained life of devotion. You guys know as well as I do. I hate to say this. We come across people and we think they're a Christian. We think they're a real follower of Christ. But they quit. I'm not saying they went somewhere else and served the Lord. I'm saying they just quit. It's what breaks my heart. I don't know who you are. There's somebody here today. Some of you, not somebody, there's some sums of you. You're going to quit. None of the apostles quit. And they had major opposition. None of them ever quit, and they all went through to a martyr's death. Only John ends up dying a supposedly semi-natural death, but they try to martyr him. All the other guys, you only die for what you know is. These guys are convinced, 100%. Jesus proved it beyond a doubt. Number three. By the way, all of the, not everybody that believed in the Lord saw him resurrected. But all of the apostles, it was, a, it was a qualification, a credential. They had to have seen Jesus after his resurrection. Number three, the apostles were commanded. And I literally, I'm not a, y'all know that I don't do alliteration, right? So we didn't force this. It's, just, it's one of those times. They're chosen. They're convinced. He chose them. He convinced them. And then the Lord Jesus commanded them. We see this back again in verse number two. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. He gives commands. Let me get it right. Through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So let's quickly review something that we did probably two or three months ago. Jesus is the most demanding person in history. Uh, I know there have been a lot of demanding people. Jesus is the most demanding. It's like everywhere he went, he starts talking to people. One-on-one conversations, small group conversations, his guys, enemies, um, you name it, large groups. He's constantly telling people what to do and how to live. He's the most demanding person in history. Now I'm going to do two categories. First, is just kind of some various commands. Sometimes, as I said, this is to his enemies. Sometimes it's to a, a Pharisee by himself at night. Another time it may be to a woman at the well. Sometimes it's just him and his disciples. Sometimes it's people crowded in a house who want to hear him. Sometimes it's in a synagogue. So it's different settings. Jesus just gives these various kinds of commands to various people. Let me give you a little brief list. Just a taste. Jesus... Demanded that people be born again. Here's what he says. The most demanding person in history says, you must, you must be born again. He says, repent. He tells people, repent. Change the way you think about you and your sin and about him. Repent. He says, listen to me. Hey, Jesus says, listen to me. He tells me, you better listen to me. That's what he says about himself. Jesus says, believe me. Believe in me. Jesus says, Love me. Talking about himself, love me, believe in me, listen to me. He says, Pray. He tells people, Pray to God, the Father, but do it through my name. Use my name when you go pray to the Father, it'll get you access. Who does this? On another occasion, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Translation Pay your taxes. Hey, Lord, what should we do? My people, pay your taxes. Another occasion on a mountain, he tells people his followers lay up treasures in heaven. So here's this kind of got, got two of them side by side. Has to do with our money. Pay your taxes. Lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. Don't just be banking up and banking up way more than you need. And it has why be wise, but don't just keep setting up way more than you need. And when it's time for you to go, if God has especially blessed you, what He would say, lay up treasures in heaven. When it's time for you to go, make arrangements that you are laying up treasures in heaven and not just blowing it and wasting it. Or I don't know where it's going to go when I die. Make arrangements that you are surely investing in the kingdom because the moment you're there, you're going to be glad. Now, I hope they do what I said with what I left down there. Lay up your treasure. This is what Jesus commands. He says, forgive people from your heart when they wrong you. He says, do not separate what God joins together in marriage. He says, do not fear. Do not be anxious. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship God. That's what Jesus says. Not suggestions. Let me read that list. I'm not going to do it animatedly. Check yourself. Yes or no? Have you been born again? Yes or no? Have you repented? Do you believe Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Be honest. Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking do you love him like you should. Do you love Jesus? Do you listen to him? Do you pray in his name? Do you pay your taxes and render to Caesar that which is Caesar? Is it your lifestyle to lay up treasures in heaven? Or are you just like, nah, I'm just going to disobey that. Do you forgive people of their wrongs when they wrong you? And they've apologized and they've sought your forgiveness. Are you just like, no, nah, I don't think they're sincere. Or no, I'm not ready. Do you honor your marriage vows? Do you make a habit of living in fear and anxiety all the time and just disobeying the Lord? Or are you like, you know what? That comes naturally to me. I'm going to kill that. I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to kill that and put that to death because that doesn't please Him and I don't need to do it. And it does me no good anyway. Do you worship God in spirit and in truth? So those are some a sample of these general commandments. But now would you look quickly at verse number 2. So the first book, Luke, is about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after that he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. I'm going I'm to insert my opinion here a couple of times today. So here's my first time, I think, doing that, which is, again, you may refute this. And that's okay. You might be right. I think... Verse 2 where it says after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I think that's not just talking about all the general commands that the Lord gave to various people. I think that's talking about very specific times when Jesus gave certain specific commands to his disciples. After he's been resurrected, but before he's ascended. In those 40 days, I believe this is referring to very specific commands. If that is correct, then what commands are we referring to? We are referring to the what? The Great Commission. So where's the Great Commission? You're going to see a version of it come up in in verse number 8 pretty soon. That's in Jerusalem. The famous version is up in Galilee in Matthew 28 that we looked at a couple of months ago. So... I believe that the specific commands are given, that are given here refers to the Great Commission. Again, Matthew 28, Luke 24, 47, Acts 1, 8, and also Mark chapter number 16 has, has its version there. To go out and make... Here's the, here's the command. All that other stuff, think about that. If it was only all those other things, then how would they remember? Like, How are we going to remember all those other things that you've ever said? So it's going to include that. And you still may be wondering, how are they going to know? We're going to get that in a minute. How could they remember those things? There's a reason they're able to remember. And that's going to come out of verse 4 and 5. All right. So here's their assignment. Their assignment, as they receive the baton, is not only themselves to obey the commands of Christ, not to get themselves saved, but to spread the message of Christ by doing and teaching themselves. And so they're going to... Do that, And the last command, in essence, he gives is to not only go make disciples, get them baptized, but teach them to observe all that he's commanded. I know you are tired of me saying that, but we're going to keep drilling that in. The last command is for them to teach all the followers of Christ to obey all the other commands of Christ. And the last command, which is to teach people to put their faith and trust in Christ, get baptized, and then obey all the commands of Christ, which again includes the last one. And it just keeps going and going and going all the way down. Couple of thoughts before we move to our second point this morning. We're not apostles. I'm not an apostle. But these same three things that are true of them are also true of every true believer. We are chosen, we're convinced, and we're commanded. All of God's people have been chosen, all of God's people have been convinced. Convinced of what? If you're a true follower of Christ, you are convinced that he is the Lord. He has all authority in heaven and earth. And you're convinced that he came back from the dead. You say, well, I don't believe that he came back from the dead. You're not a Christian, according to Romans 10. We're all convinced. We've all been chosen. And we've all been commanded because their, their command was to teach us the commands. And to keep those commands. And to pass the commands along. Can I use two pictures? And, and I, I think I'm going to fall short really bad right here. Have you ever seen a relay race? You guys have seen relay races, right? So there's a bunch of teams, they're running. It's usually four-man, I think, Four man, four woman. So picture people are running around this track. They're giving it everything they got. You see them? They're going. I mean, it's not like coast and jog. They're booking it. There's urgency. They have the baton. They run as fast as they can. They get there. They hand the baton to the next person. They take off booking it, running, urgent. Wow, we've got to pass it on. We want to get there. We want to win in the end. Everybody's got to participate. Could you imagine standing in the stands watching eight or ten teams trying to go around the track, passing the baton, and you look, and there's some team over there that their first person runs well, Their second person runs well. But the third or the fourth just, I mean, people are booking it. And they do everything they got. And they they skin their knee. And they fall getting it to them. And then they get it and they go, thanks, I've got the baton. And then they just stop. Just stop. They don't advance anywhere. They don't pass the baton. Is that your Christian life? Has the faith, the gospel been passed to you from someone someone else? Who gave it to someone else? Who gave it to someone else? Who gave it to someone else? And then it's been passed to you? And to this day, you've not passed it to anyone else. The message here is the Lord has transitioned from Him doing it personally where everybody's watching Him. He gave the baton to the apostles and it's all coming down to us. And so today, the Lord's work is to be done by Him, by His Spirit, in His spiritual body, the church. The Lord's work is to be done by us. Let me think of it another way. I want you to picture another version of that same idea. Ready? I want you to picture a massive wall. This thing may be 500 yards high, 500 yards wide. It is a massive spiritual family tree. It's a big computer, and it has billions of names on it. Massive. And it's an interactive computer. And at the top, so here's this family tree, spiritual. At the very top is the name Jesus Christ, and you go down from there, and it breaks down into 13. Now, you got the 12, and you have Paul, these apostles. And if you were to click on them, then each one of them goes down. And this one here reached this many people, and this one reached this many men all down the line, and, of course, over here in Paul's category, he's got all these many, many people. And Peter has all these men. We don't know the details, but it just keeps going and going. And then we're going to tap on that one and zoom in, and they have this one. So here's this person way down the line, hundreds of years later. This person influenced this person. And then this person influenced this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And then this one, they introduced, uh, they they influenced these people. This one influenced these people. These, but over here, there's just one just just stops. And that same thing happens all over this spiritual family tree. There's these people that get saved, and the person above them told them about Christ, and they told all these other people. And then the others they told, they went and told other people, but there's the... And I guess we're left to think, they must have died. That must have been a deathbed experience. They got saved on the deathbed. That's why they they told no one else. I'm afraid we're going to get to heaven and find a lot of people. Thank you for the baton. I'm going to heaven. But they're going to die. Go to heaven, having never passed on the faith. Is that you? You're here for a reason. Number two this morning is in verse 4 and 5 verse 4 and 5, we find an order to wait on God's promise. There's an order to wait on God's promise. Let's read verse 4 and 5 again. Verse number 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard of me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in your first point, I had this word transition. And now I've got to go back to it because we're not trying to force this idea. We're just saying this is an example. Verse number four again. While staying with them, the them is the apostles. This is the apostles, the guys who are going to become the most authoritative outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But in fact, they're ambassadors doing his work. Carrying his authority while staying with them. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait. Wait for what? For the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So right out of the gate, I want you to write this down. The word wait illustrates for us this unique transaction nature that exists in the book of Acts. Because as I pointed out last week, none of the true believers on earth at the start of the book of Acts have the Holy Spirit. Not even the apostles. They don't even have the Holy Spirit yet living inside of them. And, of course, as we're going to go through the book, some believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will have the Holy Spirit, but not all yet. And then, thankfully, by the end of the book, the pattern will be that all believers will have the Holy Spirit. But here we are. Even the apostles are told, now, you're going to have to wait for the promise of the Father, which has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next thing I want you to notice is also comes in verse 4. At the end of it, it kind of threw me. And this is pitiful. I should have thought of it. Hopefully, you, some, some of you will do better than I did. Look at verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them, not, hey, don't depart from Jerusalem. Get to Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard of me. So, guys, you heard me talking about the promise of the Father. And then I go into verse 5, and I think because of verse 5's wording, it kind of made my mind go in a certain direction. I started thinking about, like, I think it's Matthew 3, uh, Luke 3 or 4, somewhere in the early chapters. And I started thinking about, yeah, John the Baptist came on the scene. He says, there's one coming after me. He's mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to, to stoop down and, and strap the, the latch on his sandal. He's great. than I. I'll baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I'm thinking, when did Jesus? He says, wait. So go to Jerusalem. Don't depart, but wait for the promise of the Father which you heard from me, and I'm thinking, when did you? I know John says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. When did Jesus talk about this? And, of course, I'm thinking through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's, it's John. It's, go, it's John's gospel. It's in the upper room. Let's just quickly look at this. Because the Lord said, hey, 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 apostles. I told you about this. There's other people told it. Ezekiel predicted it. I think Zechariah predicted it. Joel predicted it. Isaiah predicted the coming of the Spirit. John the Baptist predicted it. All these predictions. But you remember I told you about the Spirit's coming. It's almost time. It's almost here. When did he do this? Hold your spot in Acts. Go back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. just going to fly through these. This is just like 40 days earlier. Just some four, A little over a month earlier, they're in the upper room. Judas has already left. He's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane within probably a couple of hours. He'll be arrested probably within three to four hours. He'll be on the cross the next morning. What's he doing here in the upper room? A lot of things. But look at chapter 14. Look at verse number 16. This is what our verse in verse 4 is talking about. Jesus says, and I, to the, to, talking to the apostles, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, Another advocate, another another counselor, another comforter. I'm gonna pray for you, and the Father's gonna send you another helper to be with you forever. What's He saying? I'm leaving. They're very disturbed. Hey guys, I'm leaving. Where are you going? Where I'm going, you can't come. Well, we wanna come. You'll come later. But I'm gonna pray and ask the Father, and He's gonna give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. They can't receive the spirit of truth. Why? Because it, the world, neither sees him nor knows him. Now, watch the end of verse 17. You know him, for he dwells with you. Present. He dwells with you and will be in you. Did you see that? So the apostles are not total strangers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit already dwells with them. What he's talking about is going to be a new dynamic where he actually is going to dwell in you. Verse number 26, skip down. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, still the same scene, Jesus still talking. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Guys, if I've talked to you on the phone in the last week, I don't remember details I might might remember the main takeaway. If we had a conversation a month ago, I might remember the main takeaway. Maybe. Probably not. I'm getting old. How are these guys going to remember details? Verse number 26. The Holy Spirit is going to cause you to remember everything that I've said to you. Flip over to chapter 15 quickly. But when the helper, verse number 26, 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me boy I skipped something earlier didn't I I might might go back and get that we'll see because it actually uh, yeah it could tie in here here we go my mind's going now verse 26 when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father he will bear witness about me he's going to be wearing witness telling you guys about me and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning did you catch it The Holy Spirit's going to be bearing witness to people about Jesus, and you're going to be bearing witness, you apostles, because you were with me uniquely from the beginning. You're the ones that need to start this. You're qualified for it like no one else. The Spirit's going to bear witness to you about me, and the Spirit's going to bear witness to them about me, and you will be bearing witness about me. Chapter 16, look at verse number 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Again, they've just been told Jesus is going away. This is not good news to them, so they think. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. Even hearing that, I've got to believe they're still thinking, yeah, that's not as good. We want you. We want you. We want you being here. We like you being here physically. Verse 8. But here's the deal. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict, convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Watch. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to be doing work that you can't do. You can share the facts, but you can't make people feel conviction of their sin. He's going to do that. You can't convince people that I am righteous, and my death on the cross is enough to pay for your sin. But the Spirit can do that. And, oh, by the way, you don't have the words to make it feel urgent because judgment's coming. But my Holy Spirit will make them feel the urgency of it. I sure did when I was nine. I was convicted of my sin. I was convinced Jesus' death on the cross was righteous enough to pay for all my sin. I don't need to add anything to it. And I better do this tonight. I better get this right tonight. Holy Spirit was at work. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Oh, well, I guess we're just going to miss out on those things. I got a lot more to say to you, but you're not ready right now. Oh, well, I guess we're going to be like, we've got a lot of teachers here. Sometimes you don't get through all the curriculum, right? Hey, May, June came along and just didn't get through it all. Is that what Jesus says? No. When, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. These guys are going to talk about things that are going to happen in the future. How do they know this? Did Jesus tell them details? No, the Holy Spirit is going to come and show them the future. Verse 14, the last one here. He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see what Christ is saying? You need to go. You need to wait on the promise. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. It's the promise of the Father that I gave you just 40 days ago when we were in the upper room. Back to Acts 1. So if you were in John, go back to Acts 1. Verse number 5. Can I, before I hit this, just for those few of you that have a twitch in your neck because I skipped that earlier note. <laughs> and you are not listening to anything else because your mind is trying to fill in those blanks. So I didn't finish it. Let me mean, just throw it out. We would have gone to Luke 4, verse 18. And it's not going to be on screen. Just listen. Jesus comes out of, Jesus gets baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove. I don't know what that means. He goes into the wilderness, and he wins the victory over Satan. He comes out of there empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and now that he's 30 some, and they're starting to hear how famous he is and all that's been going on, it's Saturday in the synagogue. They hand him a scroll. It's Isaiah. He knows exactly where to turn. He turns Isaiah, what would be chapter 61, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to proclaim. And he goes on and talks about the different things. The giving of sight to the blind and the setting at liberty of the captive. And to go, and, and in verse, the next verse, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I don't understand it all. Here's all I know. The Son of God, after the bapt- his physical baptism by John, the Son of God now has the Spirit of God on him and in him in a unique way. Here's your note. Write it down. Jesus had his own power. He has his own power. And yet, he also ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because verse 2 says, he gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. The apostles whom he had chosen. He gave commands to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is involved in Jesus' ministry. Jesus speaks in the power of the Spirit. So if a while ago, when I was talking about that relay race, and you say, I think I'm one of those that received the the baton, all these people before me, man, they like broke their neck to get that baton to me, and I'm not passing on to anybody else. And I'm that one in the family tree. I'm just that little stubby line that I received it. All these people, that one told that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, got to me, and I'm not told anybody else. If you're sitting here saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm just not a good talker. I'm not really good at sharing my faith. I think the Lord would say this. You think I lived a sinless life and had a powerful ministry only because I'm the Son of God? Well, of course he had a sinless life because he's the Son of God. But I think what he would say is this. You also can defeat sin in your life and you too can have powerful words if you'll rely on the anointing of my spirit. What he would say is I relied on the spirit while in my body on earth in the flesh. You rely on the Holy Spirit in your life and you will see you'll not be that little dead end in the family tree. I said I wasn't going to develop that dent. I actually ended up hitting most of it. Now back to our second point, which comes out of verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 5. And again, I don't know how you guys read your Bible. Sometimes the littlest words do something. Would you look at it with your eyes? Am I twisting this? Wait for the promise of the Father... Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Catch these two words, prepositions. For John baptized with the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water. But, and that's connecting words. Catch those two connecting words. For do y'all, do y'all feel that? Go wait for this promise from the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's how I hear that. For John, like this is good. For this is good. This is a good thing. This is a great thing. The baptism of John's a great thing. For that, but that, do you feel that? We got water. Water. What kind of water? Uh, Jordan River water? Water. we got water. we got the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water. But you will be baptized. Which is better, water or the Holy Spirit? It's not close. John knows his baptism is important. His baptism is important. But he knows it can't compare to the one that Jesus is going to give. Mine's important. Israel, you need to do it. So if you're taking notes, let's write this down. What was John's baptism? What was the point of the water baptism of John? Were, were John's hands magical or so super spiritual that when he touched you, you got saved? Maybe when you went under the water, it washed your sins away? Is that No. Write this down. John immersed people in water as an outward expression of their inward repentance from sin and their faith to God. Is that important? Absolutely, it was important. Can I translate that? I know you're probably starting to write that. If you want to write that, here it is again. John immersed people, baptized means to be placed into. John immersed people in water down by the Jordan River. Why? As an outward expression of their inward repentance of their sin. Hey, if you've repented of your sin, then get down here and get baptized. Jews didn't get baptized. Gentiles got baptized into Judaism. John, here's here's in essence what his baptism kind of had to do with. It was for the Jews to admit by being baptized, hey, this Jewish blood in my body is not enough. Jewish blood in me is not enough. I need to have my own relationship with God. I'm not just getting in under the umbrella of promises God made to Abraham. I need to take those personally to me. I need to repent of my own sin and hate my own sin, put my faith and trust in God and His promises myself. That's what his baptism stood for. But now write this. Water baptism is symbolic. Water baptism is symbolic. Yes, it's important. But the baptism of the Spirit is far greater than that because we're talking about a greater eternal reality. The baptism I'm pretty sure somebody could have faked repentance and went down in the water and got, got baptized by John. But you can't fake. Not in reality. Not in a way that fools God. You may fool some people the local church acting like you got baptized in the Holy Spirit, but you're not going to fool God, because the baptism of the Holy Spirit is eternal reality. It is greater than the water baptism. All right, I'm coming down the home stretch this morning. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I think it's as though Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, Hey, guys, I don't just talk to hear myself talk. I don't just talk to break the silence and awkwardness. If I say something, by the way, somebody probably needs to hear this. When God says something, it's going to happen. When he makes promises, they're good. He's not just talking to be talking. What the Lord is saying, you remember when I said that in the upper room? When I say something, mark it down, it's going to happen. You may forget that I said it. Maybe a gap of time before it actually happens, and you may forget about it, but I haven't forgotten about it. It is going to happen. It's as though the Lord is saying, hey, guys, listen. Listen. Do you know all those 300 prophecies about the Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, and then I came and fulfilled that after thousands of years of those prophecies? For thousands of years, there were prophecies that Messiah's coming. What the Lord is saying is I came and fulfilled 300 of those. Oh, by the way, do you think it's going to be thousands of years or hundreds of years or even years before the next great promise of the Lord is fulfilled? No, it'll be a matter of days, just days. How many days? I'm not telling you how many. It's just going to be not many days. You mean months, not many days. Until that promise is fulfilled. I told you I'm going to insert my opinion. Here's the second time. Back in verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. So here's my opinion. I'm probably inserting. I kind of feel this way. You want to write it down or if you want to chuck it. Here we go. I believe that since the apostles were Galileans and men of action by nature, I believe it was not their desire to wait in Jerusalem. I don't think they were too juiced. Surely it was not their desire. Why? Can't we just wait in Galilee? We're Galileans. By the way, the Lord resurrects, shows himself in Jerusalem, tells them to go to Galilee. They go to Galilee. Why we got to go back down there? Can't we just have the promise fulfilled up here? And why we got to wait? I want to do something. You've told us this, and we're ready to go. You told us we're supposed to go make disciples. Let's just go start. Nope, you need to wait. And you need to do it in Jerusalem. And I'm in my, again, I'm reading between the lines. I'm thinking, they're probably thinking, Lord, they just murdered you by crucifixion here in Jerusalem. The leaders that did that, they know that we're your followers. Is it really safe for us? Now, completely thought. Since they were Galileans and by nature men of action, it was surely not their desire to wait in Jerusalem. Yet, this is key thought, in obedience to Christ... That's where the promises of God are received at their best. It's in obedience. Again, we're not earning the promises of God. It's just that's the place where God blesses. Again, you're not earning it. It is always grace. Here's what Jesus is saying. Guys, you may not want to be in Jerusalem, and you may not want to wait, but the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out in Jerusalem not many days, and so you're going to have to wait, and you need to be there when it happens. You need to be there when it happens. Can I ask a rhetorical question? It's rhetorical to adults, to some of the young people. It may not be rhetorical. You may really need to think about this. But You ever been in a point in your life where you feel like God's got you in a waiting game? Like you want to see something big, you need something big, but it's not quite happening yet, and you're just kind of waiting. You ever been there? It was like six and a half years ago, almost seven I got fired, got fired where I was for 21 years. I don't think I did anything specific, it was just a changeover was taking place, and I got to let go. And I didn't have a job for six months. Hello, we're addicted to food here. <laughs> when... Just waiting. I'll tell you guys, with what I do, I do try to study, I do try to study. I can study all I want. At the end of the day, I'm just telling you, I'm not trying to be Mr. Fake Humble up here. Until God opens the valve, I can study all I want. I won't tell you what happened this past week. <laughs> it, t- it took a while. It took a while. I was like, Lord, anything? You got anything? I'm not getting it. I got some facts. Lord, please, it's kind of, yeah, you're just going to need to wait. You ever felt like you need to Wait. When you're waiting is a good time maybe God just like I just want you to rest. Here's a big one I think what's going on. I just want you to feel your dependency on me. You depend on me and you need to be just you're just going to wait. You feel the dependence on guidance, you feel the dependence on provision, you feel the, the 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 need that I have to give you of strength. It's time to rest. It's a time to feel our dependence. It's a time to evaluate. I'm not actually conquering the long journey right now. I'm kind of just waiting. How's my air pressure? How's my spiritual oil? How's my spiritual gas tank? How am I with the fundamentals? It's a good time to just have renewed focus on the Lord. Don't know what else what to do. Just kind of waiting. Maybe just want you to really focus on it. Yeah, but don't I need to be out doing this? That's coming. But it's preceded by something else. Let's finish quickly this morning. Barclay writes. He told them to go wait. I believe that's probably not their favorite thing to do is to wait in Jerusalem of all places. But Bar- and by the way, too much transparency, too much talk. Regret. I gave y'all the, not the best part of this quote. Should have given you the last part. I gave you the obvious. I didn't give you the best part. Hear it all first. Hear it all first. Hear it first. Barclay writes, we would gain more. Hear it first. We would gain more power and courage and peace if we learn to wait. Don't write it yet. Just wait. Wait. Just wait. We would gain more power. Do y'all want these three things? Because he's right. It's not right because he said it. It's right because he's right. We would gain more power and courage and peace. If we learned to wait in the business Of life, we need to learn to be still. Now, that's going to be up in a minute. Let's hold off. He pulls in Isaiah 40, 31. We know that they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Here's what I should have given you. He writes, amidst life's surging activity. Got to get that last note. Amidst life's surging activity, there must be room for a wise passiveness. Got to be room for a wise... What's passiveness? That's where you let the action happen on you before you go out and do the action. Amidst life's surging activity, there must be room for a wise passiveness. Amidst all the striving, there must be time to receive. Is that part of your daily schedule? You say, Jeff... Isn't the main point of today's text that the baton's been passed from Jesus to the apostles and they were faithful and they passed it to this one, to that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. And for 2,000 years and it's been passed to us and we need to... Yes, absolutely. That is the point. But it's also the point that the optimal, optimal ministry for Christ is achieved after a time of just receiving from the Lord. So, Lord, before I go out and launch trying to serve you, before I try to sing up here, before I try to preach up here, before I try to teach anything, before I try to raise my kids today or do my job tomorrow, I'm going to start with just a time of passiveness where you do the action on me and just let me soak in you and where I'm reminded of my dependence on your Holy Spirit. And then out of that overflow, you send me out to keep your commands and to teach other people to keep your commands. Now, write that note and we'll be done. I think sometimes we delay God's blessings because we don't want to wait. And I'll, I'll tell you right now. We are averse to waiting, especially when we don't like our current circumstances. I don't like them right now. Some, you're like, I'm averse to waiting because I'm, a, I'm type A. I want to get something done. Okay. There's others like, I don't, I don't want to wait right here. This is horrible. I hate this condition that the Lord has me in. heard a preacher. I was with Brandon this week a couple of days. We were edified much. Um, with North American Mission Board. An event we were able to go to for pastors. Not a quote, but I heard one of the pastors there out of Houston, Texas, I believe was the man, Greg Mott. And he said, something to this effect, we got to learn to wait on the Lord. Hear it, because His plan, His plan carries His power. So wait on His plan. He reminded us, guys... You want God's promised Isaac. You don't want your Ishmael. You need to wait. You need to wait on God's Isaac, not jump the gun and produce your Ishmael. God's plan has his power. So I close with this thought. You may be here this morning. You may say, Jeff, I don't like where I'm at. I understand. Maybe I don't understand. But I wonder if the Lord would tell us all this morning. You may not be where you want to be. But you're right where you need to be. So just wait and rest. If he has you in a holding pattern. Just wait and remember your utter dependence. And just keep telling him that. And do the things you know to do. What we're going to find. What are these disciples going to do for ten days? They're going to do the main thing they know to do when you're waiting on the Lord. What is it? They're going to pray. So you just pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. So you've received the baton of the gospel. Have you passed it on? Have you passed on? He's passed the baton. It's in our hands. His ministry. Now, it is His power within us. If you are one, you say, Jeff, I try to share the faith and pass the baton of the gospel. Does it always... Is it always preceded by a time where you say I I, I submit myself to the Lord I don't want to just launch out In my Ishmael ministry I want the hand of God on it So I'm just going to wait And it may be longer than I want to But I want to be in God's perfect timing I want to be handled and filled by Him So does He have you in a waiting pattern? What have you done with the gospel? And all of us who are Christians Would you just write now what an advantage we have. I got saved at nine years old. Now I'll go ahead and tip the hand of where we're going the next few weeks. I didn't have to wait for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I didn't have to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you didn't either. You ought to right now just say, Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had anointed him and that the apostles anointed their ministry. Thank you that that same Holy Spirit abides in me. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word. Lord, would you speak and make real personal? Or would you please make really personal some of those last thoughts? I, you know that I had to speak in broad generalities, but I know your Holy Spirit can make something specific to someone. And Lord, you know that I, I was really nervous about today, I didn't. Didn't feel a lot of confidence like. This would be received as a relevant message. So Lord, I'm asking you to make us feel the weight and make us feel the relevance of this text that the gospel has been passed down to us. It's in our hands. And we need to pass it on to others. But do it in the power of your spirit. May that be our takeaway today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.